Welcome to Israel and You, bringing Israel and the Jewish people into focus. Our host is Aaron David Free, President of Israel Team Advocates International. Aaron is an author, speaker, Bible teacher, and an advocate for Israel and the Jewish people on college campuses nationwide. This is Israel and You. Welcome to Israel and You, and today we have a very special guest, a friend of mine that I met uh, the last two summers at Oxford University, Dr. William Kohlbrenner, uh, joins ISGAP, the uh, Institute for the Study of Global Anti-Semitism and Policy. He's a Director of Academic Development for ISGAP. Uh, Dr. Kohlbrenner is Professor of English Literature at Bar Leine University in Israel, trained at Columbia and Oxford Universities. Dr. Kohlbrenner has written scholarly books on the author of Paradise Lost, John Milton, the 18th century proto-feminist, Mary Estill, and Rabbi Joseph Slovichich, has also written extensively on the genealogy of anti-Semitism in the Woke Academy. And as I think about Wilt Milton, um, Bill, I think of Milton's hell and Milton's abyss. And it seems in the last two weeks since October 7th, it's almost as the abyss has opened up. And Milton describes hell as a dismal situation uh, that is uh, wild. And he also says there's no light but rather darkness visible. And it seems that that's what's happened in our world in the last two weeks, just a dismal situation. So uh, under these circumstances, Bill, just welcome to the program. Welcome to Israel and you today. Thank you so much, Aaron. I'm really happy to be here. And so I, I want to start off just by asking a question. You, you live you live in Israel. Uh, you're a professor. And you live in Tel Aviv. And I actually okay. live in, in Jerusalem. I live in okay. Jerusalem, though my my institution, Bar Ilan, is 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 in Tel Aviv or closer okay. to Tel Aviv. So, you know, we've been exchanging um, conversations through through WhatsApp, our our platform from uh, ISGAP, and I can't imagine what you've gone through the last uh, few weeks, uh, Bill. So, just maybe explain to us what happened on on the seventh of October. I, Aaron, I, I always love when people quote Paradise Lost, and it's not me. Um, <laughs> darkness visible. Darkness, darkness visible. Darkness visible is such a good metaphor, really, for I think what what happened and what is happening. That we are now seeing the face of true evil. Hmm. Very rarely does evil announce itself unambiguously. And it seems for some reason the Hamas terrorists documented their own atrocities. They documented them, they saved them, they celebrated with them, and we saw it very clearly on October 7th. I myself was in a synagogue dancing with the Sefer Torahs, is as is our custom on the Jewish holiday of Simchat Torah. And there was the unusual 
occurrence of a siren in Jerusalem. Now, we hadn't heard sirens for months or a year. I don't even remember. And when it did happen in the past, it was a rare occurrence. It was usually the center of the country. And of course, as your listeners probably know, the south of the country that's adjacent to, to Gaza. But on this morning, we heard Jerusalem not once or twice or three times, but seven or eight times, which was unprecedented. Mm -hmm. So we were going from the synagogue upstairs to the bomb shelter downstairs, back and forth, back and forth. And we had no idea because, as you know, Aaron, on the, on the Jewish Sabbath, which it was as well, we do not use electrical devices. We stay away from doing the kinds of work that we do during the week. And we had no idea what was going on. Hmm. And it was only afterwards I told my daughter that after we ended the Sabbath, um, she should plug in the television, which we just rarely use because we wanted to find out the news. Um, and when I came on, the TV was not on, and I looked at my older daughter, she's 25, and she just shook her head and said, you know, implicitly to me, there are grandkids here, our, my grandkids, and uh, you just can't, we can't even fathom what's happening. And I think really this has been our experience is the slow understanding of what happened first on that traumatic night. And I will tell you, Aaron, that every single day, we hear new stories, we see new videos, we hear new new atrocities. Yesterday, the international press was invited to Jerusalem for a screening of the body cam footage that was too sensitive to show. And the reason we did this is because we were seeing Holocaust denial in real time. And where in the 40s, we had no or little of the kinds of technology that we have now. Now the Hamas operatives, the Hamas terrorists, they documented what they did themselves, and yet still the world denies it. So our country, Aaron, we are really, you know, on a family level, on a city level, on a personal level, on a national level, we are experiencing a collective trauma. Um, this is, October 7th was the worst day in Jewish history since the Holocaust. And, right. and, and probably, and probably I would say the most significant day. Um, we can talk about that more, but that's, that's kind of where we are um, in Israel now. We're all still trying to get our heads around what happened as, as, and this is a very important to note, we are fighting for our lives. This is an existential battle for the survival of the state of Israel. And I would go further and say for the survival of the Jewish people. That is so true, and, and I think Milton was right, Bill, in his description of hell, a darkness visible, and, and all I felt, and I know most people in the, in the listening audience, all the people in the listening audience have felt a darkness visible uh, the last mm. several weeks since October 7th, and how do we get out of this? I mean, where's the light in all of this? Um, what's, what's Israel's endgame in your, in your perspective in the Gaza Strip? What needs to happen, Bill? You know, Aaron, here, here I really, I, I don't have that kind of geopolitical expertise, sure. but I can speak a little bit to the possibility of the light. And that light really exists, I think, and I'm so grateful to hear that your listeners are looking for the light and actually did see the darkness because there are many people who have not seen that darkness. And, and, and part of Part of the problem for us of that darkness is that we saw the world media reported last Saturday night on a massacre. 
that the Israeli army was said to have committed. <clears throat> and it was immediately reported in all major news agencies. Sunday morning, New York Times, Israel's, Israel massacres 500 uh, Gazans. It turns out that the hospital, was, which was ostensibly bombed, is entirely intact. The missile hit a car park, a parking lot. The missile was not an Israeli missile. It was an Islamic Jihad missile. And the death count caused by the Islamic Jihad was 10 to 50 people. Hmm. And yet, and yet, and here's the darkness, Aaron. And yet, it, the Times published a retraction yesterday, I think, or an apology. Nobody reads the apology. Saturday night, the 14th, created a reality in the world, a reality of darkness. And even though Israel did not do it, the world treats us as if we did. It's almost as if, and we really have to see this in the history of anti-Semitism, if the Jews didn't do it, well, they really wanted to do it. And that's only after that night have we seen marches in London, in New York, in Warsaw, in Portland, Oregon, in New York City, at the University of Wisconsin, at Stanford, at the University of Michigan, and on and on and on. So there's the darkness. The light is really in this conversation, Aaron, and in, in, in having your listeners join in our experience. We're very lonely people right now. We really are. We've always been that. But we are experiencing that loneliness in a way we haven't, as I as a Jew never felt this lonely. And an Israeli, certainly not. Um, we're happy for the light of cooperation, of presence. I mean, that's the ultimate light. Milton, again, the human face, hmm. divine, right? Wow. That's, that's where the light is. And it's, it's amazing that, you know, I, I read something this week. Uh, someone said, you know, you have to give Hamas credit because when that uh, missile allegedly hit the hospital, which it did not, uh, within 60 seconds, they were able to go into the hospital, you know, under, uh, under flame and burning timbers and count 500 uh, dead bodies all within 60 seconds and then reported to the New York Times and and other news outlets, which immediately, as you said, reported that Israel hit a hospital and 500 were, were killed. And I, I think that's what I was talking about when we opened up, Bill. It's, it's almost like we always knew this was here, and you've been writing about anti-Semitism, studying about global anti-Semitism. Uh, you, you know, you're a senior research fellow for the Institute for the Study of Global Anti-Semitism and Policy, ISGAP. And, you know, working with you, Bill, the last few years and learning from you, um, I know that this has always been there, this, this deep anti-Semitism, uh, not only anti-Zionism, but a, a hatred of Jews globally. And it's like the abyss has opened up. Uh, this dark, mm. visible abyss has opened up, and I think the world now is seeing what's happening on American university campuses where uh, professors, administrations are signing petitions against Israel. It was always there. It's not as if they're, this, 
they're aghast with, oh my gosh, this is, Israel is committing a, a genocide. These folks have been anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic for a long time, but the bowels of hell seems to be opened up. So talk to us a little about what is happening globally and maybe in the States for our, our listeners, mainly in the States. What is happening on college campuses? Why is this anti-Semitism being unleashed the last 20, 25 years? So thanks for that question, really. Um, but let's go. Let's just go back a second. And one of the things I value, Aaron, about our friendship is that we've talked very openly about different kinds of anti-Semitism. And at the same time that there is, of course, this anti-Semitism, which we will address on the left, there is also a different kind of anti-Semitism on the right. Mm -hmm. The Charlottesville uh, anti-Semitism of you will not replace us this implicit supersessionist Christian theology kind of turned on its head. And I always mention, and I write almost completely about left-wing anti-Semitism, but it is very, very important to remember that there are two kinds of anti-Semitism in America. If you just see one, you're missing the whole picture. And we need to see both of them. And strangely, there is a kind of relationship between the two of them. When one goes back to the history of early Christianity, the idea uh, if, of Paul, you'll, you'll correct me if I'm getting the sources right, is it Galatians? There is neither Jew nor Greek, yeah. a letter to the Galatians. Right. Um, that turns out very well for the Greek, but not so much for the Jew. And lots of anti-Semitism over the millennia, and the church's anti-Semitism in, in, in specifically, is against Jewish particularity. Mm -hmm. Any, and, and Christian universalism, as it developed itself, always developed itself at, in relationship to the exclusion of the Jew. Thank God there are Christians like you and like your listeners now who have moved away from that really toxic theology for Jews. But I will say, and this is the similarity between right and left, the left-wing woke anti-Semitism is a kind of, and forgive me for saying this, it's based upon the model of Christian evangelicalism. And I'll explain to you why I'm saying that. So in 2017, there was a dyke march in Chicago, an intersectional gathering where all minorities were welcome. However, when the Jewish group of dykes came up with a Zionist flag superimposed on the rainbow flag, they were asked to leave. In 2021, there was a food festival in Philadelphia, those who were selling Israel-style food were asked to leave. The exclusion of the Jew from the intersectional alliance is not just an accidental exclusion or the minority that does not count. It, the Jew is the identity against which woke identity constructs itself meaning just as early Christian universalism was defined itself in relationship to the Jew, so also woke progressivism defines itself in relationship to the exclusion of the Jew. You will not find a woke progressive who does not support Palestine, Gaza, and Hamas. That is the tell. And going back to your question, Aaron, what's happening on university campuses? Well, thank God, 
I'm thanking God that my kids study here in Israel because I would not want to be a Jew on an elite campus because we're seeing the phenomenon now. I saw it at Columbia University where I was, where I went to school. People celebrating the murder of the Jewish people or the murder of Jewish people. Families being slaughtered in their homes, house to house. Children watching their parents being murdered. Parents watching their children being murdered. Women raped on the bodies of their dead families. So Jews in America, I think, are going to find themselves in a very difficult situation. At a conference on Sunday in Philadelphia, Brett Stevens of the New York Times spoke of October 8th Jews. There were October 7th Jews and then October 8th, the day after. And we're hoping very much in Israel to bring in those liberal Jews who have now been abandoned by their friends. I mean, some, some liberal Jews are continually in denial and they'll go to the very end against their own people. And we know from experience the Jewish people does. It starts with the Jews and it never ends with the Jews. Right. And any Jewish person who is involved in the progressive movement is going to become a target. We have not even seen the ground war here begin. As your listeners know, the Israeli army is gathered on the Gaza border. Some of it, there's also a large chunk of the Israeli army on the northern border. We haven't even begun the ground war to see the pictures that will come day after day after day of the Israeli attempt to eradicate Hamas, just as the coalition in, led by America um, destroyed ISIS. But those pictures that go back on the American media, they're going to cause a huge backlash in American campuses. And I fear also that those, that those the anger in American campuses against the Jews will spill out into the streets. I'm, I'm really fearful of this. This is a global Jewish problem. I agree. And, and so much of our campuses, so many of our campuses today are be, being funded by radical Islamist organizations that are funding our campuses. And just a few days ago, Bill, there were 800 legal scholars that over 800 from universities globally that signed a public statement against Israel calling for an immediate ceasefire and accusing Israel of genocide. And I looked up these campuses. There's probably about 850. And Columbia University, Harvard University, Dartmouth University, Stanford University, UCLA, UC Davis, Yale, on and on and on. Uh, legal, and I, I say that facetiously, scholars, because I don't think many of these people are actually scholars. And I, I did some research yesterday, Bill, on, on some of the folks that signed this uh, public statement. They're not legal scholars. They're anti-Zionist activists that are, are teaching on our campuses, um, presenting themselves as scholars. But this is a deep problem. And so when you think about it, all these uprisings on campuses all across the world, and we've allowed in professors that are anti-Zionist activists calling you know, the Jews uh, leading an apartheid state. So talk to us about that. How has this 
explosion of anti-Semitism happened on our campuses in America and globally? You know, I went to Columbia, as I mentioned earlier, in the 1980s, and this was really the beginning of the woke movement. In the 80s, it was still kind of dynamic and fraught and interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm an Orthodox Jew now, but when I was at Columbia, I considered myself the leftist. I was a student of Edward Said, who was a Palestinian nationalist, a professor at Columbia, and also friend to Yasser Arafat. Um, but this was the beginnings of it. And I have to tell you that I, I, I benefited a lot from the critical perspective that was offered to me. Sure. But what's happened over the decades is that this has turned into an orthodoxy. There is no room anymore, and I've seen young scholars who are really so constrained but what, about, what they, about what they can write, about what they are able to research, because orthodoxy makes certain kinds of demands. So they are scholars in the sense that they have been hired, they have been tenured, and they have been promoted. Middle Eastern studies departments are devoted, are activists departments that are devoted to the destruction of the state of Israel. And they exist on elite campuses throughout America. English departments, humanities departments have turned into the same thing. We, and Arne, I can tell that you had a liberal arts education, quoting Milton. We learned critical thinking. We learned how to read. Students are no longer taught how to read. They're taught how to look at texts, at great works, only as markers of power or sexism or whatever. But reading, being addressed by a voice, seeing somebody else, even though they talk all the time about seeing the other, they never see the other. They only see the reflections of themselves. They never see that human face divine. So a word of of optimism, or at least qualification. Jews are the most optimistic people because we've survived so long, but it's an optimism that is born out of very deep pessimism. Um, the phenomenon that we're seeing on many campuses and the signatories on uh, petitions or statements like the one you read are very often centered at certain elite universities. I hate to use that term, but it, it is unfortunately applicable as is the term woke. So the word of optimism is that there are people, I think, across America, like your listeners, students who are ready to learn, teachers who are ready to teach again. That's really all what humanistic education is about. Seeing the human face divine in multiple traditions, in people we may not agree with. I'm an Orthodox Jew and I study Milton. That doesn't really work with the identity politics of today. Right. right? I, I try to encourage my students. I say, you know, you can read Milton or Dante and you can read it safely and get out. You will not be converted into a Puritan. I promise you. When you read the Inferno, you will not be converted into a Catholic. We have to go back to reading. And I think this is where we have to do things outside of the university to try to remind people of the humanistic core of the university, which I think still is present in America, in places where we, we, don't, we don't hear spokespeople for Hamas and Gaza people who want to go back to old-fashioned humanistic teaching 
And those people will also realize that the continuation of the humanities is dependent upon erasing anti-Semitism. Without erasing anti-Semitism, the humanities is done for the reasons that I described before. The woke progressives define themselves in relationship to hatred of the Jew. For the humanities to survive, and perhaps they will, perhaps they won't, they need to eradicate anti-Semites in their midst, as you said. The scholars, the tenured professors, the guys with all these degrees and all these letters after their names, we have to get them out of the university and replace them slowly, generationally, with people who remember what teaching is. I 100% agree, Bill, and, and your work... Um is really all about that and i i thank god and for me the light is 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 you bill that you're out there uh trying to change the narrative um in the academy because uh in my opinion that is where the battleground is at uh on our campuses and in in my world on the evangelical college campuses you, you know you mentioned supersessionism and triumphalism or replacement theology that died out after the Holocaust, but it's, it's come back. It's alive once again. It's being taught in um, schools all across America, evangelical schools that are saying that the Abrahamic covenant with the Jewish people has been broken uh, because Jews rejected Christ and the land uh, covenant uh, for Abraham and his descendants has been nullified. The land no longer belongs to Israel. It belongs to the Palestinians. And so on these evangelical campuses, you mentioned, you know, the anti-Semitism coming from the left and anti-Semitism coming from the right. Uh, we're seeing this uh, progressive leftism on our evangelical college campuses trying to root out Jewish people from the land. And so in my world, this is very dangerous and the narrative, uh, as you say, it has to be rooted out one professor at a time who has been sowing these kinds of heretical ideas in our seminaries, on our liberal arts campuses uh, within Christendom. So I so appreciate your work, Bill, uh, with, with ISGAP, the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism Policy. You're on the ground. You're working every day. And so for me, I want to say you're just a, a, a little little light at the end of the tunnel that, you know, if Bill is out there, I have hope that somehow the narrative is going to be changed. And one more thing before we close out. You had something very special, and I know we Jews, we are pessimistic, but we're also the most optimistic people on the planet. And just, I think it was a week ago, your daughter was married, and that is a point of light. And so it, tell, us, tell us about that event, Bill. Well, the, the event was originally scheduled to be in a beautiful winery, but that didn't happen Sure, because there's so many missiles being fired. So we had it in a home of somebody we never met before. They let us have their home. The reason we had their home and their garden where we had the chuppah, which is where the ritual of marriage takes place, it has to be outside, is that it was close to a wedding hall, which was built two stories underground. So essentially, we changed the wedding from 250 people, which, believe it or not, is a small wedding in Israel, to about 100 or 125 people. And in a way, and I think everybody can relate to this, when all of the accoutrements, the outside things of the ritual, of course, there were photographers there, but when you can really focus on what's happening on the people, it became so much more special. 
I told my daughter, and it was a big responsibility, that she was getting married not only for herself and her family, but for all the people from all over Israel and from all streams in Israeli society. But she was also getting married for Israel and the Jewish people because so mm. many people, I think it was retweeted 200,000 times on, oh, wow. on Twitter. So it gives, it gives us hope when we can look to the future with hope and go on. And yes, that was a, a beautiful and significant moment. Thank you, Bill. And, and I, I just want to let you know from, from my audience to you, uh, you're not alone. And there are many, many uh, Christian people uh, that are praying for the peace of Jerusalem, uh, many Jewish people in my audience that are praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And we stand with you. Uh, we hope with you. And uh, we pray that this darkness visible uh, will be erased, like the, the name of Haman will be erased forever from, from the planet, and uh, we'll remember it no more, and we'll have peaceful days in our future. So, Bill, thank you so well, much man. for being with me today, and we'll, we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Art.